Welcome to this week's edition of Flashback Friday, your opportunity to get some good review by listening to episodes from the past that Jason has handpicked to help you today in the present and propel you into the future. Enjoy. Welcome to Creating Wealth with Jason Hartman. During this program, Jason is going to tell you some really exciting things that you probably haven't thought of before and a new slant on investing. Fresh new approaches to America's best investment that will enable you to create more wealth and happiness than you ever thought possible. Jason is a genuine, self-made, multimillionaire who not only talks the talk, but walks the walk. He's been a successful investor for 20 years and currently owns properties in 11 states and 17 cities. This program will help you follow in Jason's footsteps on the road to financial freedom. You really can do it. And now, here's your host, Jason Hartman, with the complete solution for real estate investors. Welcome to the Creating Wealth Show. This is your host, Jason Hartman. This is episode number 407, 407. Thank you so much for joining me today. I did a funny thing. Happy Labor Day, by the way. It is a holiday, so I hope you can cut me some slack on this. I recorded an intro for you, and then I realized toward the end of that recording that the microphone was not plugged in. Oh my gosh. I've never done that before. Anyway, sorry about that. But I thought the content was pretty good, and I think you'll want to hear it. You'll just never be able to get it right the second time. So (laughs) I'm going to play it. So let's go to that. Please excuse the sound quality. Of course, it's usually better. This was recorded without the mic being plugged in. So my apologies, but I think it's good enough to work. Here we go with the commentary part, and then we'll get to our guest today that I'll announce in just a moment. Welcome to the Grading Wealth Show. This is your host, Jason Hartman, and this is episode number 407, 407. Thank you so much for joining me today, and thank you for getting us way up on the charts on iTunes. We recently were number nine in the business section out of all business podcasts on iTunes. We were number nine, so thank you so much for listening. Thank you for your nice reviews, and thank you for referring your friends and family uh, to the podcast. I really appreciate it. So today, uh, my friend Matt is going to join us for something very, very different. I've never done this before. It's uh, kind of an odd podcast, but I think you'll really enjoy it today. My friend Matt has a uh, another real estate podcast. You know, we were thinking, well, you know, maybe we should be on each other's shows and try this out. And then we got to talking and thought, heck, why record two interviews? We thought we'd just record one, so nobody's really interviewing anybody here as the guest today. We're both guests and hosts at the same time, just having a conversation about how we got started in real estate, you know, what we think of real estate. And I think, as I recall, the other day when we recorded, we touched on the subject of robotics and how that affects the economy. And that's going to be a, a subject I want to talk to you a lot about in future episodes because that is going to have major, major impacts. And I've talked to you also about how I'm launching a new show. I know I've been saying that for a while. I'm a little slow on some of these projects. But um, it's called The Longevity Show. And I've been really interested in the economic impact of increasing lifespan and what that means for the housing market, what it means for the broader economy. And also, it's not... Remember, when we talk about lifespan, the lifespan is, of course, increasing. But what's more important than actually considering the concept of lifespan when it comes to retirement age, people's buying patterns, people's housing needs, and and so forth, it's also the concept of what I call health span. 
So it's not just lifespan, but health span. And we see now people, uh, you know, someone posted, one of my friends on Facebook today posted a, uh, a workout video of, I think the man was 91 years old. And you can probably Google this and find it. Uh, or maybe it's viral and it's showing up in your Facebook feed as well. He was doing all these incredible workouts. And I thought, gosh, you know, that guy, I'd have trouble keeping up with him in the gym. It was pretty amazing. And, um, you know, the point is people are living healthy, vibrant, longer lives. But it's not that the lifespan is really 120 or 150 years old yet. Of course, it's never been 150. But I think we're going to see it get there pretty soon um, with all these uh, longevity sciences that I've been talking about uh, as I've been recording shows before launch of the longevity show. It's about health span. And, you know, I mean, I don't know why the retirement age is honestly still 65. I mean, 65 is way too early to retire, in my opinion. I could have retired when I sold my uh, last company back in 2005, but who would ever want to retire? People do not live very long in retirement. So you got to have a purpose for your life and a mission and something you're passionate about, obviously. That's, um, that's going to uh, make it work. You know, that's one of the things we do here on the Creating Wealth Show and on my other shows is we, uh, we help people get out of their corporate jobs so they don't have to be Dilbert living in a cubicle and they can gain financial th freedom through uh, through their investments. And that's that's what we're all about. An interesting thing, uh, there were some rankings floating around and you always see these kind of rankings going around about the top 10 most expensive housing markets in the U.S. and the, the top 10 least expensive, or I guess maybe you want to call that the bottom 10, least expensive housing markets in the U.S., and um, with my mom being on the show uh, just uh, on Friday's episode, and we talked about how she just rented the house I used to live in when I was a kid in West Los Angeles. And, uh, you know, she's owned that house for many years, paid $62,500 for it, and uh, bought it from a guy named Jerry. I remember it well. And now it's worth about $850,000, and it was rented before for... 30, I think it was 3300 per month. And this time she was ecstatic and I had to burst her bubble. And, uh, you know, she was probably a little mad at me for doing that, but oh well. And uh, she was ecstatic that she rented it for $4,000 a month. And I said, well, you know, the reason you rented it so quick is because you, you got, you, you really got taken advantage of in that deal. You know, the properties should rent for 1%, 1%. Remember, life is all about percentages. It's not really about numbers. It's about percentages and ratios. And that's the important thing. So if any of you listening are nationwide, uh, well, I know many of you listening, most of you listening are nationwide investors uh, like myself. But if any of you listening happen to have uh, any challenges in renting any of the properties you own, just do this. Be ecstatic like my mom in her example and rent your property for a 0.5 RV or rent-to-value ratio, and I'm sure you will rent it in a day. In fact, I'm sure it'll even be better than that. People will be lining up around the block to rent that house from you. So here's an example. Say, for example, you bought a property through my network, and uh, say it was in Houston or Memphis or Atlanta or Little Rock, where we have our upcoming property tour at the end of uh, the end of September here, and I hope you're joining us for that. Say you bought a property for one hundred thousand dollars, and instead of renting it for eleven hundred dollars or one thousand dollars per month, why don't you just put it on the market for five hundred dollars a month? 
you will rent that property in a New York minute. Okay, boom, it will be rented in no time. You will have many, many applications, I'm sure. Because think about it, in any market in the country, that's pretty much the price of renting a single room. About four or $500 a month is about the cheapest place you can rent one room, one bedroom in somebody's house with roommates, okay? So if you rented your house, your $100,000 property that you purchased through my network at jasonhartman.com slash properties, if you rented it for a 0.5 RV ratio, like my mother's example on Friday's episode of renting the 850, actually hers is lower than 0.5, $850,000 house for 4,000 a month, you rent your $100,000 house for 500 a month, you will have no trouble renting it. So there is never a problem renting the property. There is only a problem renting it for the expected ratio, the rent to value ratio of 1% per month. Let me give you that said, let's talk about a couple of cities because this is a very interesting comparison. As I was reading an article on uh, on Forbes, uh, Forbes.com, and we've had, you know, Steve Forbes has been on the show and uh, Rich Carlgaard with Forbes Magazine was recently on the show as well. We've had a few different Forbes writers, Thomas Sowell, who is awesome, by the way, that's a really old episode. Folks, I know most of you listen to my back catalog. That's what it's called in the industry, the back catalog of old episodes. But go back, and if you're not doing that, go back and listen to the old episodes because there's a lot of great stuff there. Not just the new stuff, but a lot of great old stuff that's timeless. Forbes.com did this great comparison, and uh, the infographic is entitled Homes Within Reach. How much house can a middle can the middle class afford? So they give the example of three cities, San Francisco, the Socialist Republic of San Francisco, Denver, and Atlanta. This is a great comparison, what I'm about to say. So listen up. I think you'll like this. In San Francisco, the median household, now this is not per person income or per capita income. This is per household income, which really makes you see how little people make. It's really kind of depressing to tell you the truth. But in San Francisco, a high-wage city, the median household income, so that's usually a two-person household, okay? It might be dinks, dual income, no kids, okay? It might be, um, uh, you know, married with children, whatever. Um, Okay, so the median household income is $84,129 per month. For $440,000, that's what you can afford. If you make $84,129 annually as the median household income, you can afford a $440,000 house. So in San Francisco, only 14% of the people can afford to buy a home. Let's contrast that with Denver and Atlanta now. This is mind-boggling how out of sync things are. In Denver, the median household earns $62,000 four hundred and eighty seven dollars annually that means that they can afford a three hundred and twenty five thousand dollar house and boy in san francisco for four hundred and forty thousand dollars you can't buy anything (laughs) you know that by the way the median price home in san francisco is one million dollars absurd totally absurd in Denver, for three hundred and forty uh, or three hundred and twenty-five thousand, pardon me, you can get a very, very nice home. I mean, it's you know not a mansion, but it's a very nice home for three hundred and twenty-five thousand dollars. Fifty percent of the people 
can afford to buy the median price home in Denver. Not bad at all, versus 14% in, in the Socialist Republic of San Francisco. Okay, let's look at Atlanta now. It gets even more out of sync. And I know you're probably, hopefully as I'm talking to you about this, you're thinking of a good question. And uh, that question is going to be, well, Jason, why are you recommending markets that are so affordable? Wouldn't everybody just buy rather than rent? I'll get to that in a moment. In Atlanta, the median household earns $55,465 annually. That's the household, okay? Could be a single-person household, by the way. But, you know, I think the majority of households are dual incomes, okay? So the median household in Atlanta, just over 55000 So just to recap, San Francisco, I'm going to round off here, 84000 annually. Denver, 62000 annually. Atlanta, 55000 annually. Now, if that household earns $55,000 per year, they can afford a $273,000 house. And in Atlanta... For $273,000, you can get a really, really nice home. And that means that in Atlanta, 72% of the people can afford to buy the median price home. So, you know, I've talked a lot about self-driving cars on prior episodes and how uh, formerly in real estate, or still, but I think it's fading, and I think this is being downgraded as an important factor in real estate. What are the three most important rules of real estate? Location, location, location. Not so much anymore because you don't have to live in these high-priced cities. Uh, you know, look, I lived in a really high-priced city. I lived in one of the most expensive cities in the country, Newport Beach, California. And I'll tell you, since moving to Arizona three years ago, I think my quality of life is better, arguably except in the summer, maybe not. <laughs> it's a little hot. But anyway, you know, I think overall my quality of life is much better in a more affordable place, okay? And look, I mean, I could afford to live very well in Newport Beach. I mean, you know, uh, one of my recent homes in Newport Beach was 3,300 square feet. I owned it. And, um, you know, I, I had another house that was 3,100 square feet in Newport Coast and owned that one too. And I just felt like I was always spending so much money in my house. My last house payment... Uh, living in Orange County, California, okay, behind the orange curtain, as they say, because it's so different from L.A. My last monthly household expense was almost $12,000 per month. I mean, that's just a waste of money. And at that point, I had an 1,800-square-foot house, okay? And uh, so it's just these prices just get totally out of sync. I mean, they're just ridiculous. Now, oddly... The markets that are the most affordable many times make the best markets in which to invest because they, they are affordable to buy and you can get much better rent-to-value ratios. My mom's example, the Los Angeles example on the last episode, that example, the $850,000 house for $4,000 a month, look, that's a great deal for the tenant and a terrible deal for the owner, for the investor. So in Atlanta... You know, if you owned a $100,000 property in Atlanta, you could get $1,000 to $1,100 per month in income, 1% or more per month versus less than half a percent in my mom's example. It's all about ratios. It's not about the amount. It's about the percentage. It's about the ratio. I want you to really focus your thinking on ratios and percentages. 
And you'll start to notice them everywhere in life. Certainly you've heard of the Pareto principle, the 80-20 rule, right? You'll notice that everywhere. You'll notice it with uh, success. You know, 20% of the people earn 80% of the money in the world, right? And that's been proven over and over. And then walk into your closet or open your closet and, uh, and look in your closet. And I will bet you, you have of 100% of the clothing in your closet, you wear 20% of it 80% of the time. I know I do, Okay. So the 80-20 rule applies to everything in life. It is an amazing, amazing principle. It even works with clothing, okay? The 80-20 rule, believe it or not. Think as an investor, think about, when you think about numbers, don't think about the gross number. Think about the percentage. I remember when I was taking flying lessons, my flight instructor said, you know, we were, I remember we were sitting on the runway at John Wayne Airport in Orange County, which is like the hardest, most stressful place to learn to fly because it's the busiest training airport in the world. And so I was taking flying lessons there and no wonder I never finished because I was just so nervous. You know, you get up in the air and you're 400 feet off the runway and there's just air traffic everywhere. And, you know, you're scared of a mid-air collision, right? That's no fun. But if you learn in Orange County, if you learn at John Wayne Airport, you're going to be a pretty good pilot because everything else is easier than that, okay? Uh, because there's a lot less air traffic. And, and you know, there are busier airports, certainly Chicago, O'Hare, and, uh, you know, uh, Hartsfield-Jackson in Atlanta or LAX are busier airports, but they don't do training. They don't do general aviation at those airports, okay? This is a, an airport that still, believe it or not, does general aviation. Anyway, long, you know, I've never been accused of being short-winded, right, folks? I go off on these tangents. So I'm about to wrap up my point here, and here's my point. I was sitting on the runway. We were about to take off. We had just done our run-up where you test the engines and all that kind of stuff and look at the instruments before you take off. I noticed a big jumbo jet taking off right before us, and that always concerns me because whenever you have a, a, a big jet landing or taking off uh, you know, right before you, uh, you become really concerned about what's called wake turbulence. You know, a big plane makes a huge wake and a little light plane, you know, that can, that can make you crash. So I asked the instructor, I said, hey, you know, could you fly that plane, the, you know, the, the big jumbo jet, right? And he said, um, you know, Jason, I could pretty much jump in that cockpit and fly that plane because it's all about ratios. It's, so, so that plane has a different speed at which you take off and land, okay? But it's all the same principles of aviation apply. You know, maybe the instruments and the buttons and the knobs are in slightly different places too, but he could basically fly any plane as, as long as he knew a couple of key factors, the stall speed, the takeoff speed, the landing speed, things like that. He could jump in that cockpit and fly a 747 or a Cessna 172, you know, pretty much... It's just a question of ratios and, and the relevance of those numbers, okay? So that's what I want you to think about when it comes to investing. It's not about how much rent you get per month. It's about what is the rent-to-value ratio. That is the key. It's getting down to the wire on the last chances to join us for our Little Rock property tour and creating wealth in today's economy seminar that I will be conducting in Little Rock at the end of the month here, at the end of September. 
And you can register for that at jasonhartman.com. Click on the events section. You know, you got to make your travel plans and get your uh, plane tickets. So register for that ASAP, and we will look forward to seeing you there. And let's get to our guests. Well, today it's not really a guest. I'm going to call it a co-host, okay? Let's let's have, uh, hear our talk with Matt. So here we go. All righty. Welcome, everybody. Hello, Mr. Jason Hartman. Hello, Matt. How you doing? Doing very well. You know what we're you know what we're doing today? We're going to freak our listeners out because I know I know we have mutual listeners and they don't know which show they're listening to right now. (laughs) That's right, because it's going to appear on both shows. Yeah, that's right. Super. So we can save you guys a trip depending on where you're listening to it first. But we decided we want to do something a little different. The podcast world is we were talking about the word that we use was incestuous. It's totally, it's a little incestuous is an understatement, man. Right. Very incestuous. Yeah. Yeah. So everybody's reviewing everybody or interviewing everybody. And we just thought, well, let's just talk and let's record it and see what happens. This will be like that show. I've listened to it about two times, but it's called no agenda. Mm -hmm. And these guys just sit and talk for like two hours. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but we promise not to go that long, dear <laughs> listeners. Yeah. Oh God, we just lost half of them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, don't don't hang up yet. Don't don't right? turn off your, no, your smartphone. No, we will not. Yet. We will yeah. not subject you to two hours of us <laughs> rambling. Not at all, Jason. I've known of you for quite a while. Uh, I know you're one of the very first, if not the first, like significant real estate podcasters. I think we've been like one degree of separation for the last several years and we just got to meet last weekend. I have no idea really what your business is about, how you got started and and what it is that you do. I just know you're like this real estate guy. So I don't know, share with me how you got started. I grew up kind of poor, lower middle end of the economic spectrum, and I didn't like it very much. And when I was in uh, 10th grade, I saw an infomercial about real estate investing. Mm -hmm. And I thought, this is the answer. So I went out and bought the book. It was Robert Allen. I bought his book. I read three chapters of it while I was in high school. I put it down. My mom read the rest and got fascinated by the topic. And she started going to all these real estate seminars. And by the time I was 18, I was was uh, just about to graduate from high school. And my mom says, hey, Jason, you know, there's this this big real estate seminar in Anaheim by Disneyland. We lived in Long Beach. Why don't you come? You're the one who got me interested in this. And there'll be all sorts of speakers. You know, it was basically one of those weekend pitch fest where, you know, starts on Friday night and goes through Sunday evening. And I went, Matt, and You were in high school at the time? I was in high school. Yeah, I took, I rounded up, you'll like this. I rounded up nine of my buddies from high school because, you know, when you're you're that age, you can't do anything alone, right? (laughs) Uh uh So I went to the seminar and all of them came Friday night and only one was left by Saturday morning. All the rest went to the beach and that was myself and my friend Rich. And then he faded out and I went and I saw every speaker the entire weekend. And I didn't know what they were talking about. You know, it's like they were talking in a foreign language to me, basically. I didn't know what a point was or APR or any of this stuff. And so, yeah, or escrow. And I got my real estate license just to learn. You know, I remember I, I was a big Earl Nightingale fan since I was 17 years old. Listening to Earl Nightingale and Dennis Waitley and Zig Ziglar and Jim Rohn, that just changed my life. I mean, I wasn't exactly the best teenager. I became a really good person with a success mindset and became a really conscientious, like good citizen. You know, I just wanted to learn more about what they were talking about. So I went to real estate school, got my license for the $99 Century 21 school and started selling real estate while I was going to college. My first year of college, I was 19 when I got my license and I had only 
ever earned, I'd been working since I was 14 years old. I'd only ever earned minimum wage in my whole life, Matt. Then by the time I had my first full month in real estate, I made $43,000 gross, gross. You know, I had Mm -hmm. to split that with my broker. And I thought, this is so easy. All I did is I put these little classified ads in the newspaper advertising government repo properties, HUD and VA repos, all the Mm -hmm. boarded up really disgusting houses in the Inland Empire in uh, Riverside, San Bernardino, California. Uh And I would drive the people around in my brand new Volkswagen Jetta that I had just purchased and I would sell them these little properties and they bought them and that was the start of my real estate career. And then my investing career started shortly after that. That's the basic story. How about you? Tell me about how you got started. It was funny that you had said Earl Nightingale because that was my first introduction to personal development and entrepreneurship. I didn't go straight into real estate. I took a different route through the music business, had my own record label, major label distribution and did very well for several years. And then uh, that digital download thing came and just kind of turned the whole thing upside down, the whole industry. And I was age 34 bagging groceries. Wow. wow, Yeah. One day I was Puff Daddy and then the next day, poof, it was gone. (laughs) (laughs) What kind of musician were you? A hip hop music producer. And so I started off making instrumental records for disc jockeys, the kind of DJs that would scratch and use two turntables. And and so I was doing that and doing okay, selling those out of the trunk of my car and kind of evolved up to having friends from the neighborhood and go ahead and, and rap on top of those. And started selling those and sold enough to one point caught the attention of EMI and they picked us up and gave us a big fat distribution deal and went from there. Did you make a ton of money? Like what is a record deal like? Take us inside that a little bit. Sure. I mean, well, you know, all, like, all of us real estate investors want to know. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've mentioned like, you know, you, you'd never made more than minimum wage before and then you, you gross $40,000 and right. that, in, in a month? That's a, that was a ton of money. I yeah. mean, that was a lot of money because at that point, I was driving around from store to store all through Southern California. I had a route. I'd start in in Los Angeles and hit Orange County and go down to San Diego, then come back, back up north through Riverside and all the way to San Francisco and back around again. And I probably hit, I don't know, 50 record stores mm-hmm. in, in that, that rotation. And I would get just ecstatic if I came home with like $2,000 from that trip. And I did that trip once a week. And when I got the distribution deal, there was a middle deal there when they, a guy said, I'll take 500 of that one specific record. When I've never sold more than two or three at a time to a store. And that person said 500. I was like, wow, this is something. And I mean, my check was like 3,500 bucks or something. Then EMI came knocking. They said they were going to give me $100,000 for records I hadn't even made yet. They were going to give me an advance. Wow. And so they, did you get that advance? Yes, I did. So yeah. at 23, 23, 24 years old, uh-huh. I got a check for $100,000. Wow. And that was just like... I bet that didn't last long. And I definitely had my fun for sure. But I was able to put out records and I kept that going and kept it growing for a really long time. That's how that started. And there's bagging groceries. And I have a funny story about after about six months of bagging groceries, it was quite the pity party and feeling sorry for myself and crying on every shoulder that I could find. And there's no shortages of pats on the back telling me it's going to be okay. And I think really, Jason, I was just kind of waiting for someone to help me. I was like, someone, please give me a break. Someone give me a helping hand. It mm-hmm. took a while for it to sink in that, wow, this is actually my life. You know, it's up to me. I've got to do something and no one else is going to do it. And I think there's one day in particular where my store manager had noticed that I was sadder than normal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he had uh, said, Matt, what's wrong? And I basically just told him the whole story. I just told you in, in much greater detail with more drama. But he said, why don't you come up to my office? Let me show you something. And he took me up to this office and he laid out, he was, he'd been working at the grocery store for 28 years. And he was just two years away from receiving his pension. 
Mm-hmm. And along the way, those 30 years, he had acquired a half a dozen apartment buildings. Wow. Wow. He, this is going to be a great story. I just yeah. know it. Yeah. <laughs> well, he just kind of laid out like, hey, I've got this pension here and I've got my income from these apartment buildings here and I'm going to retire and you know, no one is ever going to hear from me again. Where was this located, by the way? Where were you? I was at Bag and Groceries at Ralph's in Manhattan Beach. Manhattan Beach, California. All right. Yep. He had said some words to me that have stuck with me ever since. A couple phrases. Okay. One thing he said, Matt, I started doing this because someone told me that real estate was the final frontier where the average person has a real shot at achieving great wealth. And I believe that is still true. Do you? Okay. At the time, I didn't know. I knew I needed to believe in something because I had nothing to believe in. And he said, if you want to recreate the lifestyle you had in the music business, real estate presents the greatest possibility for you to do that again. He was a wise man, right? Yeah. 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 Well, he did it right and he had the evidence. So he was very believable. So he was a grocery store manager. This is why there are so many wealthy school teachers and firemen and cops and pilots and flight attendants and and people like this because anybody where you've got a job where you don't work extremely long hours and you do a second thing, you start buying some little houses on the side. Usually you're fixing them up yourself with your own hammer on the weekends or days off. You don't have to do it that way. That's sort of the old fashioned method of investing. It works and it's sort of noble in a lot of ways, I think. There's a lot of these very unassuming people that have some really nice wealth built up for themselves. And, you know, maybe it's not like they're a multi-multi-millionaire or anything, but they've got a good nest egg. It doesn't take a real high income. You know what it takes, I think, Matt? It takes starting and then it takes consistency after that. You got to just keep collecting. If the path is 10 houses a year, great. If it's one house a year or one house every two years, whatever that pace is for you, you just got to start and you got to keep doing it because the cumulative effect is awesome. Look at your store manager, right? Yeah, couldn't agree more. That's how it worked out for me as well. So I just kind of duplicated what he did. I think to a much greater degree at this point, but when I got started, it was just to do what he did. Mm -hmm. And hopefully I didn't have to work at the grocery store for 30 years. But that night I grabbed a bottle of wine from the grocery store and went home and just started Googling everything real estate. Mm -hmm. And ran across an aunt that I hadn't seen in 15 years. And she had been the number one real estate agent for the last 27 years, just two cities over. I sent her an email because it just seemed like the right thing to do. And she responded in the morning. And that afternoon we met for lunch. And I think 48 hours later, I was in real estate school to get my license. Wow. What year is this? That was 2002. When you started you had email <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and you had Google. Well, I didn't have any of that. <laughs> right. And you, we I mean, we, you we used to, to use to paper. To that seminar yeah. in the snow. And it was uphill so, both ways. Yeah. <laughs> both ways. You were advertising classified ads and a rather progressive form of, of doing it. Who taught you that? Well, my mom was doing it. I really got her interested in real estate, but she got her license six months before I did. Uh-huh. And she started selling government repos at a firm called Americana Realty in Bellflower, California. She would just place these ads and they'd be little ads in the register of the penny saver and people would call. You know, back then you had a phone machine. You didn't have any such thing as voicemail. And I remember my little phone machine. I would come home. I lived at home. I lived with my mom in in Santa Ana at the time. Mm -hmm. And I would come home and I'd see that little red light blinking and I'd be excited. And then I'd push the button and says, oh, you've got 38 messages. And I was so Uh excited. I would just make all the callbacks and I'd schedule appointments. I'd meet them at the property or meet them at their house or my office and drive them to the property. It was amazing to me, Matt. Here I was, 19 years old, and 
all of these old-timer veteran real estate agents at Century 21 in Anaheim, it was on Beach Boulevard, they would be sitting around the coffee pot. They'd be smoking. Oh my gosh, I hate smoking. It's so (laughs) disgusting. And that was when you could smoke indoors. Like literally the office was full of smoke. It Mm -hmm. it was gross. They'd be just sitting around complaining about why the broker owner of the office, they wouldn't buy them notepads to pass out. They wouldn't pay for enough advertising. And I just placed my own little stupid ads. I just spent my own money for them. And I went out and just worked. And it was amazing. Five deals my first month. Mm -hmm. I had just turned 20. That's amazing. You know, all you got to do is work. The money's out there. The world is an abundant place. I heard those exact words from a veteran real estate agent right in the beginning. He said, Mm -hmm. all you got to do is work. Look at everybody here. He pointed out the people at the water cooler and at the coffee pot. And it was my first real exposure to if you do what everyone does, you're going to get what everyone's got. Mm -hmm. It was a good lesson to go against the grain. Everyone would hold open houses on the weekends. I held my open houses Monday through Friday. Right off the bat, it got me rookie of the year in my office. And I did a little bit better the next year. And then I switched offices and did better then and better then. And after four years of that, I was like, hmm, I'm working an awful lot. And I had a client that gave me this repeat business over and over again. And I remember there's one Saturday, the total turning point. I'll never forget it. We had an appointment at 11 o'clock on Saturday. He was coming in to sign his docs. And I was there all early in the morning getting prepared, had a paperwork all laid out across the desk. I was in my suit and tie and he came in probably 20 minutes late in jeans and a T-shirt and signed his paperwork and he was off. And I was left there to process the paperwork and then go hold one of his houses open. Mm -hmm. And I was like, you know what? If real estate is where the money's at, I think I'm sitting on the wrong side of the desk. Very good revelation. Before I got into real estate, my mother had two small businesses. One was a Pioneer Chicken franchise, and it was in a terrible area of Los Angeles. I kid you not, she was held up at gunpoint, pistol whipped when the burglars came in and stole $1,200, made her open the safe, and they shot the gun into the ceiling and all this stuff. What I realized, and my mother realized too, is that when you do something in business, it's good if you can do something that is a high ticket item. And real estate is a high ticket item. So you have these cash spurts where you can make a lot of money. And by the way, folks, we're talking about traditional real estate now. We're not talking about the investment side of the business, which is kind of different. But you know, in Southern California, properties are expensive. You sell some properties there, you'll make a few bucks on real estate commissions, but you'll never have the passive income. And the investors always really ultimately have the better life. Because like you said, you realized you were on the wrong side of the transaction. I made a large investment in my real estate investing education. Based on what I know now, I realize how lucky I was to have found a good educational program first. Yeah, there's a lot of bad ones out there. Yeah, I've heard so many stories of people that just go from one program to the next and don't end up any smarter than they were before they got started. And and they don't own any more real estate than they used to either. That's right, that's right. (laughs) The bookshelf is full, but I didn't know any better at the time, but I luckily picked a really good one at the beginning. And, you know, within 60 days, I had had my first flip done. Mm -hmm. Then it took me about eight months before I got my second deal. But then I kind of got the hang of it and they just started to come in consistently. And, and I learned how to do it with none of my own money, none of my own credit. Because after a failed record label and, and filing bankruptcy and a divorce, it's like credit was nothing to speak of. Yeah. And eight months in between my two investment deals, my cash was pretty much depleted. 
So I had to get creative. I right. had to get started with no money, no credit. And here I am almost 250 units later. Wow. Yeah. Good for you. So 250 units, is that in uh, like a holding portfolio that you're keeping or that you've flipped and kept and deals like total deals you've done or how do you count? No, that? no, no. I've done a lot more deals than that. So okay. that's my, that's my holding portfolio. Okay. So I actually just counted this for last week's episode. I was, I haven't uh-huh. counted in a while. So it was 242. I'm <laughs> in the process of, of doing some liquidation and, and upgrading properties. So right. I think there's something to be said for quality over quantity. Yeah. But that's a mix of multifamily and single families and duplexes and, and triplexes and mm-hmm. all across the Midwest and in the South. After that educational program, that's about the same time I was introduced to uh, the book Rich Dad, Poor Dad and introduced to the concept of passive income. And I heard of the expression before, but I never ever stopped to think about it or how to create it or what my life would look like with it. It just seemed like something for somebody else. But I just kind of got a grasp of it, you know, reduce your expenses and increase your residual income. And once that residual income surpasses the expenses, you are essentially financially free. Right. That's that you're out of the rat race as Kiyosaki yeah. puts it. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So I was able to do that in about three and a half years. When you look at the statistics, 95% of the country can't do that in 40 years. Yeah, I know. It's uh, it's really sad, but we're trying to solve that problem. You know? We are. We are. So I wasn't rich or wealthy by any means, but I certainly did not have to report to anybody. So that was a really good feeling. All of a sudden, my sleep improved dramatically. I became a much more enjoyable person to be around. When you are bagging groceries one year and a few years later, you are playing golf on a Tuesday, people that know you, your family, friends, associates start to scratch your head and wonder what's going on over here. Well, they think you're doing something illegal. They just know that it wasn't a good situation the last time they talked to me. Had a lot of coffee appointments, a lot of lunch appointments, a lot of dinner appointments of people wanting to, quote unquote, pick my brain. I heard that expression so often. Right. I was like, wow, now that I've got my portfolio, I can see that there's a lot of people that would like to learn how to do this. I think I have a unique twist on it, how to do it without using your own money or credit. Let me give it a shot. Here we are with the podcast, four years strong running. And depending on which day you look is number one, two or three in the real estate side. It's all been very, very good. Let's talk a little bit about the industry in general, because you talked about the podcast and I just want to share some thoughts with our mutual group of listeners as to, you know, the industry, the outlook for the market, that kind of stuff. You got a great story. I've got a great story. Everybody's got a great story as long as they do something. See, the common element of having a great story is that whoever's in the story took some action and actually did something. Otherwise, there's no great story. As far as the industry, you're talking about not the podcasting industry, you're talking about more like real estate agents. and Oh, yeah, yeah. The real estate investment business. You had mentioned the threat of them taking away some of the tax deductions, things like that. You're always hearing about it. You're always hearing about the government's going to change this or take this away or alter this. And I guess in some respects that we were impacted pretty significantly with the Dodd-Frank Act and how we can sell houses to the general population. And just so many more loopholes and, and hoops that you have to jump through. Right. Not loopholes, but hula hoops. I hear about the interest deductions going away or taking incentives away from you know real estate investors. And it's always a concern. And I know you keep up with that more. That's more the subject or you talk about more of that stuff than I do. My take on it is that I don't worry too much about that stuff because everything in life and in economics always has an equalizing factor. If they take away the deduction, 
and they somehow disincentivize ownership of real estate. And really the interest deduction applies to homeowners more than investors mm -hmm. because the investors, it's just a P&L. You know, you have right. your income and your expenses and your expenses will always be deductible. I mean, that's just like running any business. That would be a, a completely right. illogical thing. But for homeowners, it does matter. If the mortgage interest deduction were to go away or to be reduced, as it was many years ago, they reduced it, I believe, to $1 million 100,000, I believe it is. And then there are some tricky things if you refinance and you can't go above basis or something like that. I don't remember, but this is not what I'm concerned with. It's not my area because I'm not selling traditional real estate. We both only deal with 100% investors. I think that's true for you, right, Matt? My client is 100% investors. Yeah. yeah, same here. If they disincentivize homeownership, hey, that's fine with me because that just means the rental market will strengthen. You know, if people don't want to run out and buy homes, I have long said, I think the homeownership rate is too high. I don't think we should encourage the homeownership rate to be 65, 69%. If the government were to get out of the business of encouraging homeownership through tax policy and through government-sponsored entities like Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, if they were to get out of that, I think the homeownership rate would naturally and rightfully fall to about 50%. What's that other 15% of the population going to do? They're going to rent. And guess who they're going to rent from? You and I and our clients and our listeners. True. Right? True. True that. So that's going to mean upward pressure on rents. And these things, folks, they always equalize. But here's the part that kills you as an investor. It takes time for things to equalize. When we hit the financial crisis in 2007, 2008, you know, depending on which part of the crisis you're talking about. But when we hit the financial crisis, you know, in many ways, that was really great news for a lot of people. The hard part is the two-year adjustment period that you've got to stay in the game and hold on when you think, oh, my God, the world is ending, right? And the people mm. that can look past that are the ones who always prosper long term. A lot of people are, we've all been taught and raised to think that of our house as our primary residence as an investment. No way. Yeah. And it is the probably one of the worst investments <laughs> that you could possibly put your money into. Yep. You know, oh, you agree. Okay. I didn't know you were going to totally agree so agree. quickly. Yeah, okay. Yeah. yeah. If you put it on paper and just start put matching investments for investments over time, it's a loser. At best. It's not that bad. I'm not going to call it that bad a thing. And we're talking your own home, the home in which you live. Look at mm -hmm. anything you live in and pay for is an expense. It's a liability. It's not an asset. The mm -hmm. only time you get deceived is when you live in nutty, illogical places like California, New mm -hmm. York City, or Miami, and maybe the expensive part of Chicago. When you live in those places and every 10 years, you got three years of boom time. I mean, the cycle is almost predictable because it's always three out of seven, it seems like, of boom years. When you've got that, it looks like an investment because it goes up in value, but that's just a speculation. You just got lucky. I mean, mm -hmm. good good for you. I've gotten lucky many times and I'd rather be lucky than good any day of the week, but I can't count on luck. So I'm going to count right. on, at my old age, I'm getting more conservative. I'm going to count on prudent cash flow investments. Amen. Amen. You're right. In California, that can be a little bit deceiving. How could you say that, you know, my primary residence is not a good investment, but it is a timing issue. You've got to time it right for that to work out for you. But over the long term, 
considering the money that you put down, considering the interest that you pay, considering the appreciation and how that goes right in alignment with inflation, and then the missed opportunity cost of what you're doing with that money, and then the extra money that then it's more expensive to purchase than it is to rent. It's just like you're not any better off by the time you got that house paid off. I'll agree with you there. And you know what else? You know what is a big hidden cost of home ownership? And Mm. this is home ownership of your own home, the home in which you live, Mm. is the amount of time people spend screwing around with a house they live in. I used to always own houses and I was proud of that. I bragged about it. I thought when I moved out of mom's house, I moved into a condo at 147 Remington Street in Irvine, California, and I bought it and it was $102,000 and I sold it a year later for $160,000 and I thought I was a genius, right? I was lucky. (laughs) I wasn't a genius. I did not know that it would happen. I've always really pretty much been a homeowner. I can't believe now that living in Arizona, I've been a renter ever since I moved here for three years and I love Mm -hmm. it. It's like I spend almost no time managing my surroundings. I don't worry about stuff that's broken. I don't call and deal with repair people. I don't do any gardening. I don't argue with the gardener because the flowers died. I used to do all that stuff. It's such a waste of time. I remember, Matt, I used to spend half of my Saturday every weekend at the hardware store. Right. I could be learning a new skill. I could have learned brain surgery in that time. Of course. (laughs) That's what we need. Jason Hartman. Brain surgery. on the brains. Exactly. But no, you're totally right. And then you got property taxes too. That's a, that's a huge East, depending on where you live. We just moved into a a pretty large house in Glendale. It's got an amazing view. It's Mm -hmm. almost 5,000 square feet. Please tell me you're renting it. Oh, we are renting. Oh, good for you. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just an awesome house. And I'm there for two years because then I'm going to go to Malibu. The neighbor came over just this weekend. We were my girlfriend and I were out exercising out in front and we just finished and she walked over to introduce herself. And part of the conversation, oh, so are you renting? We are renting and we made every decision too. Are you owning? Yeah. Oh my gosh, you, you poor person. <laughs> yeah, just tell them you own 242 units and, yeah. and, and they'll shut up real quickly. You yeah. Know? yeah. <laughs> Sometimes it's more fun to keep that stuff a secret. Snobs. <laughs> totally, totally. Funny. Let's talk about education because we both got, you know, you went through that education uh, weekend yeah. and you got the Robert Allen program and then you went to the Pitch Fest and I've done all that stuff. You know, for someone wanting to learn how to invest in real estate, what would be your, they said, Jason, I want to do what you do. Yeah. Where, where would you tell them to get started? You know, listen to the podcasts because mm-hmm. it, they're free. It's a great way to sort of sort out the scammers from the real people to get some education. But also, it's not just a matter of who's sort of a, a scammer and who's not and who's reputable. It's not just that. It's also, what is your investing style? What's so great about real estate is it's so creative. There's so many things you can go into. You can roll up your sleeves and get your hands dirty and really get engaged and be in the I'm going to call it the real estate business, which is different than being an investor. I'm going to say that my company, at least right now, and you know, we adapt and change things from time to time as every entrepreneur is always tweaking things and offering something new. Right now, what we really cater to is we cater to investors, but you might cater to people that want to be more active and roll up their sleeves and get their hands dirty type people. I think, I know mm-hmm. you cater to investors as well, but I think mm-hmm. maybe you do that too, right? We do both. A good percentage of the people that come through the how-to course, the do-it-yourself course, discover, wow, this is a lot of work. It is a lot of work. It's a lot of time. It takes a little more effort than I thought. And you know what? I already have a career. I don't need a second one. So why don't you just do it for me? Right. So that was kind of the natural 
progression of, of how that second half of our business started. Now it's the biggest part of our business. You can get in the business. If you want another business, if you're looking for another career, heck, there's all kinds of great active real estate stuff you can do mm-hmm. that will take a lot of time, but could earn you higher profits and higher returns. You get rewarded for time and money invested, right? And anything. Right. It's just what style of person are you? Are you the guy that wants to be driving around neighborhoods and looking for the, you know, the don't want her seller as Robert uh, calls it, or the ugly house as the Homevestors franchise calls it? Or do you want to be at your desk and be mostly focused on your career and dedicate maybe one hour per month per unit that you own on average? We always like to say it's about an hour per month on average for each property. So if you've got 20 properties, you need to sort of have about 20 hours per month available to manage them and manage the managers of those properties. There's just different parts of it. You know, there's all kinds of different areas. You can be a buy and hold investor. You can be a flipper. You can be a wholesaler. You can do a million things. (laughs) There are so many little tentacles to this business. What we just met two weeks ago was at our mastermind group. And, you know, my first time in there, I was like, Wow, there there are so many here, different yeah. ways to make money, and, right. you, and you and you listen yeah. to people and their presentations and what they're talking about and where their challenges are and where their triumphs are, and you're like, wow, I want to do that. And yeah. I mean, I've got an established business, and I was still like, I didn't even know you could do that. Right. So there's <laughs> there's unlimited ways yeah. to make money in this business. So you got a lot of options for sure. Listening to the podcast, you're gonna learn what type of investor are you. And what I want to say to people is try not to spend a ton of money on education. You know, mm-hmm. try to spend on education education slowly and prudently because a lot of that nowadays is cheap or free. In the old days, it wasn't that way. You know, when mm-hmm. I got started, we didn't have the internet. Okay. Right. Right. You know, we didn't have podcasts. You had to buy books and go to seminars and sometimes enroll in really expensive programs. And that stuff is still available. Some of it is good and some of it is really, really bad. Mm-hmm. I can't tell you the number of people who have been to my seminars and said they come up at like you usually by lunch, by the lunch break, they'll say, you know, I just spent 9000 or $12,000 or $58,000 on this guru's program. And, mm-hmm. you know, I could have just bought two or three properties instead. And I'm like, right. yeah, you could have. Most of the education you get is by doing things. I agree. 100%. You, know, you, you got to be active. Nothing is going to replace the on the field education. Yeah, on the job training. But you got to start. You have to get a basic knowledge. And like you said, discover what type of investor you are. Because there are all types, as many, you know, as many personality types there are go hand in hand with their investor types as well. Absolutely. Uh, No question. I learned how to create my Internet business. Now I've got two different Internet businesses, all 100 percent. Of for free, basically, from podcasts. On my other podcast, Do Over, I, I talked about that, like to look for inspiration of what you want to do with your life or what you mm-hmm. want to do from this point forward. And podcast is just such a overflowing resource yeah. of just such awesome information. You get to listen to it on your own time. You get to evaluate on your own time. And It really is. And you know, it's like uh, Wikipedia. I remember talking to my mom about Wikipedia when it first started to make a name for itself. And she said, well, you know, Jason, people just put their own stuff in there. None of that stuff is verified. But think about it, really. What of anything is really verified in the world? What is true? What is true is the collective knowledge of a lot of people. And now everybody listening to this has access 
to almost everybody else on the planet and their knowledge. And it's really an incredible time in which to live. I mean, we are living, Matt, in an incredible, incredible era. And I tell you right now, as I'm saying that, I have goosebumps because the things Uh that are available to us nowadays are nothing short of amazing. In just the next five years, we're going to be blown away Uh by the kind of technology that comes along. It's it's incredible. I know you and I were talking about robotics, and that was one thing that you're concerned about. Concerned or hopeful, I'm not sure which, you know. I keep trying to, you know, that's a good thing to talk about. I keep trying to understand where that's going. And you know, Matt, every new technology has displaced people, and every new technology put people out of work, but then eventually, and it's always that adaptation time, that couple of years in between that kills people. There's always a lag time. That's why you have to have something in reserve. You know, a few minutes ago, we were talking about houses and how houses for living in them, they're not a very good investment. So don't become house poor. When I lived in Orange County, it's like everybody was house poor there. Don't be house poor. You can rent that house for a lot less money than you can own it and just own a bunch of investment properties that that make more sense. What do you think is going to happen with robotics? Well, I don't know. I mean, you certainly don't see any parking attendants around anymore. There's a uh, hotel... I'm not sure where it is. I think it was Chicago. might have been Vegas, but I think it was Chicago. Who's experimenting now with robotic butlers. Oh, yeah. I saw that. That's that's Aloft, okay, which is owned by uh, Starwood, I believe, the W. The robot delivers things to your room, you know, so you you call the front desk, you need a toothbrush or a towel, the robot brings it to you. Right, right. It's hard to fathom right now. I remember when I was in the music business and the digital download was taking over, I couldn't even see what was happening. I couldn't even imagine something like iTunes at the time. That's kind of how I feel with the robotic question. Like, I I don't know. I'm just, I don't think about it. It's not my... It's not my my creative capacity to imagine where we could go with robotics. I think ultimately it's going to increase the quality of life and it's certainly going to put a lot of people out of work initially. And this is why education is so important. If someone listening, like one of the first industries that's really going to get rolled a bit is the transportation industry because it is a giant industry. Cab drivers and Uber drivers and Lyft drivers and truckers and people that move people and stuff around. That's Mm -hmm. a giant, giant industry worldwide. Think of FedEx, UPS. If that stuff could be automated by machines and Amazon's drones that will deliver your packages, that's a game changer. I've talked about this before on the show, but I'd like to ask you about it. I think Mm -hmm. it's a big game changer for real estate because you know, Matt, the three cardinal rules of real estate, they've always been what? Location, location, and? Location. Yeah. That's <laughs> right. right. But uh-huh. I don't know. I think that's going to change too because, and I give this example in, in my show, if you could get in a driverless car and you lived in Scottsdale, Arizona, but you wanted to go to San Diego for the weekend, which is a much more expensive place to live, uh-huh. and you could just go to bed and wake up in San Diego six hours later. Uh-huh. That's a game changer. Yeah. Do you do you really on the way? Yeah. And really it would eliminate traffic because mm-hmm. if you could drive one foot off the bumper at eighty-five miles an hour from the car in front of you, which automating automobiles would be possible, and everybody didn't have to drive at prime time, rush hour would go away. That is a game changer. So high priced real estate areas beware. Because yeah. you have a value destroyer, in my opinion, coming your way. Yeah, maybe offset. You can't see the ocean from Arizona, though, Jason. Do you have to if I can just go there every weekend? As long as fuel is cheap. The fuel's right. got to be cheap. It'll still take fuel. I is think it, that's a factor. 
Well, certainly nothing I know anything about. So I don't I, either. I, but certainly you could certainly consider it, and that made a lot of sense. I well, like the idea of going to bed and waking up somewhere else on my vacation. It's a pretty neat idea. It only takes about forty hours to drive across the country from coast to coast. What's that going to do to the airline industry? If you can bring all your stuff with you, jump in a car, bring your dog, it makes it really simple. Yeah, you definitely. Know? So you know, one th- one question I wanted to ask you about, yeah. Jason, when it comes to real estate, you know, we're both here in the United States. But there's a lot of activity going on, a lot of discussion, a lot of chitter chatter about investing outside of the United States, Americans investing outside of the United States. Yeah, great question. So I have another show you may not even know about. It's called The Jet Setter Show. I did listen to it on the plane on the way home. Okay, okay. As you were on a jet? Wow, that's very fitting. Oh, that's true. (laughs) I love it. Yeah, Yeah. you you were a jet setter listening to The Jet Setter I listened to the one on uh, the Puerto Rico that you asked me to listen to. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's really an interesting episode. That was interesting. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, I interview these guys about international investing, and I got to tell you, I just don't see it. The numbers just don't really... The U.S. is pretty unique as far as real estate goes. Our infrastructure is better than most countries. Rule of law and the fact that we have a multiple listing service and and that we have things like Zillow and Trulia, it's just a lot simpler and more established. And the financing is much better here. The construction costs are lower here in most cases. I love the idea of international investing. I've definitely checked it out. I've traveled to 71 countries. I want to do it myself just for diversification purposes. Mm-hmm. But I look at these deals and the rent to value ratios are like 0.5. Why would I do that when I can buy uh, properties in business friendly Texas or Georgia and get 1% per month? It doesn't work. Right. What do you think? Right. It seems like you're injecting an unnecessary element of risk into your investing. Yeah. It is far away. It's under a different government different currency. I've seen too many movies where the government says no. And what are you going to do about it? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like right. they just change their mind on something. And I don't know if that's just the movies or it's how it is out there in the real world. I just like the idea of that. I know what the laws and the rules are here. I know how to play by the rules here. I've done a lot of work on myself. I've got a lot of experience under my belt to know how it works here and to, mm-hmm. to go into a different foreign land that I have to take either a boat or a plane to. It's an additional element of risk, but it's a significant element of risk. It's a big risk, yeah. Way out of my comfort zone. I would agree with you completely, Matt. And, you know, people are always calling me up and emailing me and pitching me on why don't we recommend Costa Rica properties or Panama properties or Brazil or, you know. Belize is a hot one. Oh, Belize, yeah. I hate Belize. I've been there twice. It's a Belize is so third world. You really must be kidding. I, I mean, just if you think Belize is good, the primo place in Belize is called Ambergris K. Uh-huh. Go there. I've been there twice. It's a dump. Get a clue. Okay. You really just don't know what you're talking about if you're if you're thinking that's good. Here's the thing. A lot of people listening to this show now are from other countries. And isn't it interesting that so much of the world wants to own American real estate? Maybe they know something we don't. And when people talk about the collapse of America, listen, I do think America's going in the wrong direction. I don't think it's as good mm-hmm. as it used to be in many ways. All I'll say is this. It has a long, long way to fall before these other places rival it. Right. I, I'm no, just being a realist. That, you, you know, know, probably, you know, we look at our own books, our own clientele, and I think we're approaching 40%. We're right around a little over 30% of our clientele is from another country mm-hmm. buying American real estate. Yeah. 
that's telling. It's a it, clue. It's very telling. And we have lots of foreign buyers too, and lots of foreign listeners. They want to get American properties and they can't get enough of them. They'll pay cash. They'll pay 50% down and get private. They'll bend over backwards to buy properties here. Earl Nightingale, the late, great Earl Nightingale, we were talking about him earlier. He said, maybe the reason the grass looks greener is because it's getting more care on the uh, other yeah, side, yeah, 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 yeah. you know? So uh-huh. exactly. <laughs> that's something to consider. I that's <laughs> I remember that actual cassette. Yeah, <laughs> that's when we listened to it. And on it cassettes. was on cassette. Yeah, <laughs> yes, it was. I, I've still got those cassettes. I bet they're worth a bundle of money. Me too. Me too. Lead the field is that the one you got? I, I got I got the whole library of Earl Nightingale. Everything he ever made, I bought the Gosh. whole library. Yeah. We could get together and have a party, a we listening could. party, Jason. Yeah, we no, have but, but I, we don't have a tape player. <laughs> That's right. We, that would be the challenge. We'll, we'll have to buy one of those somewhere at an right. antique store. <laughs> I got to ask you one question before you sure. go, though, Matt. Uh-huh. So. I'm always talking on my show, and you know this, about inflation and deflation and, you know, what's in the future. I got to ask you what you think. Inflation, deflation, or stagflation, or what do you think? I certainly see the value of the dollar continuing to drop. Mm -hmm. Um, That means inflation, yeah. Inflation, right? And I look at real estate, whether our world goes to hell or if it has a resurgence, if you're owning real estate, you're in a good place, both scenarios. Mm-hmm. So that's just, I try not to predict those things. I try not to try and guess. It'll cloud my mind and maybe cloud my judgment on what I do next. Right. But I kind of look at both scenarios and, you know, I was talking to a friend and they were over there and uh, he had a friend from Russia and he said that when the Russian country collapsed, that the only people that really survived, that only made, that made it through or people that owned a business or the people that owned real estate. Mm-hmm. So I just kind of look at that. If we were going to go down that path or say go down, the, a lot of people compare what America is doing now to the fall of the Roman Empire. And right. Whatever scenario does play out, as long as you've got real estate and you're buying real estate for residual income, you're buying it the right way to so it produces an income for yourself. I think you can't go wrong either way. I agree with you. In the inflationary environment, it's going to be a home run. You're just going to score massively, especially with what I call inflation-induced debt destruction. In a deflationary environment, you're going to be scraping for yield and there's not going to be anything that offers any real return except the cash flow on your properties. Mm-hmm. Your, your gold is going to be worth nothing. Okay, your silver is going to be a terrible deal. All of that stuff is going to suffer. Stocks will be terrible, but cash flow real estate, that the value of that monthly income actually increases in a deflationary environment. And if we have deflation, there's going to be no incentive for people to buy houses. And mm-hmm. that means there's going to be more renters. So there you go. You know, just we'll see, there you go. Yeah. Just, I, I, <laughs> and then I think it's great either way. Just like I do too. Said. I do too. And if real estate doesn't save you from whatever happens, then we got bigger fish to fry. Yeah. yeah. It, nothing's got- perfect. I mean, if we have overall societal collapse, you know, mm-hmm. uh, guns and food and water, it's right. what you better have. This is the Creating Epic Wealth Investing Podcast. I love it. A new Matt name. Matt Hartman and Jason Terrio. There you go. There you go. <laughs> All right. So if you're confused who you're listening to, you're listening to both of us and you can find us both. My name is Matt Terrio at Epic Real Estate Investing. And, and my co-host today has been Jason Hartman at the Creating Wealth Show. Creating Wealth Show and jasonhartman.com. Yeah. Hey, thanks, Perfect. Matt. That was All awesome. All right, Jason. All right. Talk to you soon. I've never really thought of Jason as subversive, but I just found out that's what Wall Street considers him to be. Really? Now, how is that possible at all? Simple. Wall Street believes that real estate investors are dangerous to their schemes because the dirty truth about income property is that it actually works in real life. 
I know. I mean, how many people do you know, not including insiders, who created wealth with stocks, bonds, and mutual funds? Those options are for people who only want to pretend they're getting ahead. Stocks and other non-direct traded assets are a losing game for most people. The typical scenario is you make a little, you lose a little, and spin your wheels for decades. That's because the corporate crooks running the stock and bond investing game will always see to it that they win. This means, unless you're one of them, you will not win. And unluckily for Wall Street, Jason has a unique ability to make the everyday person understand investing the way it should be. He shows them a world where anything less than a 26% annual return is disappointing. Yep, and that's why Jason offers a one-book set on creating wealth that comes with 20 digital download audios. He shows us how we can be excited about these scary times and exploit the incredible opportunities this present economy has afforded us. We can pick local markets untouched by the economic downturn, exploit packaged commodities investing, and achieve exceptional returns safely and securely. I like how he teaches you how to protect the equity in your home before it disappears and how to outsource your debt obligations to the government. And this set of advanced strategies for wealth creation is being offered for only $197. To get your Creating Wealth Encyclopedia Book 1, complete with over 20 hours of audio, go to jasonhartman.com forward slash store. If you want to be able to sit back and collect checks every month, just like a banker, Jason's Creating Wealth Encyclopedia series is for you. This show is produced by the Hartman Media Company, all rights reserved. For distribution or publication rights and media interviews, please visit www.hartmanmedia.com or email media at hartmanmedia.com. Dot com. Nothing on this show should be considered specific personal or professional advice. Please consult an appropriate tax, legal, real estate, or business professional for individualized advice. Opinions of guests are their own, and the host is acting on behalf of Platinum Properties Investor Network, Inc. exclusively.